Hi, this is Kara O'Keefe, director of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit and festival based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the festival, which just celebrated its 20th year, and other programming we have coming up this spring, visit our website, fallforthebook.org. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and very excited about our guest and Mason MFA alum, Cynthia Marie Hoffman. Cynthia Marie Hoffman is the author of three full-length collections of poetry, Call Me When You Want to Talk About the Tombstones, Paper Doll Fetus, and Sightseer, as well as the chapbook Her Human Costume. Hoffman is the recipient of a Diane Middlebrook Poetry Fellowship from the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, a Director's Guest Fellowship from the Civitella Ranieri Foundation, and an Individual Artist Fellowship from the Wisconsin Arts Board. Her poems have appeared in The Believer, Pleiades, Fence, Blackbird, Diode, the journal and elsewhere. Cynthia, welcome and thank you so much for coming out to chat with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so your new book is uh, when, Call Me When You Want to Talk About the Tombstones, and it's a collection that chronicles the genealogy research you and your mother had been doing over a number of years. Um, we don't often think of research as a part of poetry, uh, but this book is the result of many, many years of research. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the genealogy research you and your mother did for this? Sure, that's right. This book is about genealogical research, which honestly, mostly my mother conducted, and I was a partner with her, supporting her, and we did a lot of traveling, and we did a lot of researching at city halls, and we did a lot of going through piles of documents, photos, newspaper articles, census reports, um, other types of documents that my mother had inherited from the family, as well as our own original research. And I think of research as closely connected to poetry, in fact, and I've used research in my poems since I started writing. My first book, Sightseer, is based on travel that I did throughout Europe and history of the cities and towns that I visited. And so there is a deep relationship between the present and the past that I feel like I'm constantly exploring even though when I was younger, history never interested me, honestly. <laughs> I found my way into it in graduate school and found a way to access an interest in history through poetry. Paper Doll Fetus is also, um, my second book, is also based on research and based on history, the history of midwifery, the history of birth. And then my third book, of course, is very personal, the history of my family. My mother and I started with our first trip to Golconda, Illinois in 2016, and we visited the house of my great-great-grandmother and grandfather in Mount Carmel. And that was a way of communing with history on a level that I had never experienced before, where I was actually walking through the house that my family had built and lived in 100 or more years ago. Yeah, uh, that, that's really great to um, to think about the way that you've used history and poetry projects before, but then for this one, it was something that was really personal to you as well. Um, when did you start thinking about all of this genealogical material in terms of a book project? When my mother and I were traveling, I started keeping a little notebook and writing some of the things that she said and some of the things that we discovered. Um, my mother has a very unique and beautiful and creative way of speaking, which <laughs> I don't know if she would agree with me, but I certainly find a musicality in her voice. And I also found a musicality of a different kind in the documents that we were researching. And of course, the numerous letters that we were so lucky to have that our family wrote. And the difference between the diction, the type of language that's used in the 1800s versus the type of language we use today, 
um, really interested me. And as I was keeping notes, I started to think, perhaps I'm writing something. And it came together as a book sort of in pieces that way. And it was assembled later after our research. Great, great. Um, and a lot of what you're doing in this book is trying to put together this family story based on uh, a lot of, like you said, physical objects that are that are left behind. Um, can you talk about some of those objects that you and your mother found that were particularly useful, uh, either to the book project or just helpful in connecting those different threads of the family story? Sure. We don't have a lot of things. We have a nightgown that was given to us from a museum in Golconda, Illinois, actually. Oh, wow. And we have um, some pearls that were found um, in Golconda as well. We have some glasses. We have a razor. Um, we have my grandmother's compact mirror. And these are just small things that help us interact with our ancestors and feel as if the dead are with us. As we hold them in our hands, we feel closer to them. And so those things are a way of interacting with and communing, communing with the dead um, that certainly informed the poems. But I think the most important objects that, we're, that we have are the photographs, really. And there are photographs included in the book as well, so that you can see a little bit of the faces of the family. We were very lucky to have as many photographs as we do. That's really great. Yeah. And um, and it is almost like a multimedia book. So you can see a lot of the letters and documents and photos that you were using. Um, one of the things I, I thought about as I was reading this book is uh, there's this idea of, of incompleteness and how many questions remain unknown as you're doing this kind of research and trying to put together a family story um, and how many more questions arise from these these different objects that are left behind. Yeah, I think an unknowableness of history is something that has always interested me. Um, and it's something I explored as well in Sightseer, how as a tourist, you visit towns that um, you visit towns where a lot of historical events occurred that you read about and study about. But on the other hand, your experience as a tourist is very present day. People are selling soda pop and souvenirs on the side <laughs> of the, on the side of the church that you're visiting, and so that um, that connection, that tension between the present and the past, is very interesting to me. And what interests me the most is the unknowableness of the past. And so that was always on my mind when I was writing "Call Me When You Want to Talk About the Tombstones." I think that so much of the book is about the unknowing. The fact that you can only get so much of a small taste of your relatives from the letters and the photos, and the rest of it is unknown and unknowable, regardless of how much research you do. We're only guessing about what their lives really were like. Yeah, and one of the, the, the things I, I saw coming up in the book was there, there are times when uh, you and your mother are visiting uh, these graveyards and, and talking about whether or not the bodies are actually there. With, uh, with the graves, um, which was sort of an interesting story in itself, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. So actually, that's where the title of the book comes from. Call Me When You Talk About the Tombstones was the subject line uh, and the final line of an email from my mother. <laughs> we were doing this research uh, long distance. I live in Wisconsin. She lives in Virginia. So there was a lot of written documentation of the language between us. And this was just a very exciting discovery for us after we visited the gravestones of our relatives in Northumberland, Pennsylvania, we believed that they were not in fact interred there. We believed we were just looking at grass and earth, that the bodies were actually farther down 
town under a parking lot and we visited the parking lot <laughs> and paid our respects to where we believed our family was buried but later my mother found a piece of um, just a document in her materials that proved that the bodies had been moved and reinterred and were in fact there with their gravestones and that was a very surprising discovery for us and we made a second trip back to that graveyard to visit knowing that the bodies were really there. Yeah, and it was interesting because that that question sometimes felt like a metaphor for some of that that incompleteness and what you can't know about history. So it was um, it was a really um, it was a really interesting part of the story to see that moment when you realize there that they really were there. There there was that some sort of um, sense of completeness, even though you have all of these other questions that might remain in this kind of research. Um, the other thing that this this book does, you know, it, it's of course looking at a lot of family history, but there's also a lot of present moments in, in your family between yourself and your mother. Um, and it seems like that family history, as you are putting it together, really informs how you, know, you as the author are seeing the present moment in the book. I think I had a decision to make as I was writing that I could either recreate my experience in the present of discovering scraps of paper and piecing together the past and the unknowable of the past, unknowableness of the past, or I could recreate the past. And since it is so unknowable, I found that I would just be making most of it up. And that the most interesting story to me was really disrupting the clarity of the past because that was our real experience of interacting with our ancestors as we found notes and papers just completely disorganized and trying to piece it together. I have no expectations that readers will piece together my family tree from this book. <laughs> and in fact, I intentionally disrupted it so that there would be no sense of pressure that you should understand. Um, I sometimes lose track of my own family tree. So does my mother. It's a lot to piece together. So that's not the point of the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, I couldn't help but think as I was reading this, um, that this book came out just a couple of months ago, um, even though you've been doing the research for a long time. And in the last two or three years or so, probably there's been a major interest in genealogy as it relates to genetics and DNA and this idea that we can now discover to some degree of certainty, maybe, um, our own family history through genetic testing. Um, what was it like for you to, you know, as you were getting ready for this book to come out, to see what, you know, that cultural interest in DNA and, and genealogy emerged as you were doing this, this own work on the book and your family history? Well, I think we've seen a genealogical craze going on for the last 10 or so years or even more. Um, DNA has certainly added to that craze, as we see with Ancestry. People are sending in their DNA samples and they come back with reports that show 30% European, 30%, you know, those percentages, I'm not sure how reliable they are. You can certainly find connections to family that you couldn't find in any other documentation using your DNA. And that has been very exciting for people who were adopted or who don't have a family tree, don't have that documentation ready to go. My experience was quite different, of course. We never did the DNA, but we are very interested in genealogy. I think why are we interested in that is an interesting question as well. I think it's to do with um, dealing with our own mortality and dealing with the idea of remembrance, paying respects to the dead and 
performing the act of remembering them offers us some consolation that we in turn will be remembered. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, and like you said, what you did was, was very, your research was very different than, um, than using DNA. Um, you and your mom visited graveyards, old houses, and had newspaper clippings, photographs, letters. Do you feel like there's something that you and your family got out of that that you couldn't get from a DNA test? I think absolutely. There's such a gift in having all of the documentation that we had. And in fact, when my mother and I started our research, the family tree that we were working off of was already completed by someone else in the family Mm -hmm. and started with someone moving to Nantucket in the late 1600s. So we worked off of that tree to then go into a deeper level of understanding and really getting to know the lives of the people on our tree. So I think DNA gives you an opportunity to step into the past and take that first step through. And what my mother and I were doing, because we already had so much with the photographs and the newspaper articles, that we were then on a deeper level um, getting to know our family. Yeah, and that really gets back to you know what you were talking about with the idea of remembrance and and wanting to connect with family members in a way that reminds us of not only who they were, but how you yourself might be remembered someday. It was definitely a very moving and raw experience for me to write the book, and I definitely felt like I was living in an experience of being very connected to my own mortality and the idea of my mother's mortality and watching us add the names to the family tree and putting the birth dates and the death dates, seeing my own name on the family tree with a birth date and a space for the death date (laughs) really brings the idea home for you. Yeah, yeah. But also connects you to those people in in another way as well. That's great. Yeah. Um, So I'd like to ask you before we go, um, if you might read a a short selection from, from the book. Of course. I'll start with reading the epigraph, which is really what I was talking about before in terms of thinking about the difference in language. There are two quotes in the epigraph. The first one is from Ephraim Patterson Shannon in a letter to my dear son in 1849. But when the frosts of age settle on our temples, no spring succeeds, no summer, no autumn. This cold grave is all we are to look for. And the second is from my mother, Diane Baker Hoffman, in 2008. What if I croak before it's done? (laughs) And then I'll read a section from Samuel and Kitty really are the main people. These are the two relatives who lived in the house in Golconda, Illinois, that we visited. After Kitty and Samuel, people went on with their lives. The house went on with its life, sold, then rented, then sold again. In the 1950s, there was a parrot in a cage in the bay window that would speak to people passing on the sidewalk. In the photograph, it is 1897. It is December, though you may have guessed. One of the wooden boards on the porch needs fixing. This is the red door. On your right is your great-great-grandmother. These are the original light fixtures. This one, which looks like a peachy jellyfish, glass. To the left is the pump for the cistern. What is a cistern? This is their daughter in the puff sleeve jacket. The head of a white peony rests in her lap. Hello, my name is Dr. Gerald Burkett. Did you get a picture of the doorbell? 
patented December 31st, 1867. The Wabash County Historical Museum paid for the new roof, sealed the front porch, which was never painted. The museum also did the tuck pointing. The parrot took meals with the family in the dining room, having a place set at the table. You can buy a pack of greeting cards with a sketch of the Shannon House, and beneath the sketch it says, the Burkett House. These are the billows of your great-great-grandmother's apron and house dress, her pointed shoes, the scuffs on the points of her shoes, her bright bare hands. This is how the light embraced the trees just beyond the edge of the lawn. Samuel and Kitty built this house. The brick path leads straight into the sunlight. They are still alive, the dentist and Lois Ann. They're just like another set of grandparents, aren't they? Says my mother, whose parents died. The Burkitts, not old enough to be her grandparents, not old enough to be her parents. Kitty planted these peonies, which have replanted themselves for 138 years. Their fragrance right where the sidewalk splits. One path led to the outhouse. My dear daughter, I have spent a lot of money on the house. Hope to leave it in good repair so that if you should return to Mount Carmel, you will find a good home or you could sell it at a good price. When their daughter was an old woman, she started to have little strokes. I want to go back to Mount Carmel, she would say. One winter night, the pipes burst and water flowed. Many ceilings were ruined and fell. In the photograph, a woman stands near the wall of the house in a long white dress. She is almost phosphorescent in the darkness around her, dark ivy spilling over the balcony. Kitty's funeral was on a Tuesday afternoon, three years and eight days before my mother was born. The windows float in a sea of ivy, mirrored boats cast in dark waters. Only the back of her head is visible, the dark curls gathered at the nape of her neck where the eager froth of her collar rises to greet them. Am I in Mount Carmel, she would say. Everything was lace back then, the little stool draped in lace, the windows gushing with it, the women's blouses puffing, vaporous. This is a photograph of the Shannon house when there was nothing but a tree and dirt to surround it. Even the streets were dirt, first house on the block. Who cut down the vines? Were they washed away with bleach? Who watched them shrivel? Who tugged them from the house at just the right moment? Was it gently, with a snap of the wrist? How Kitty loved those vines. When Samuel Shannon died, all the banks and businesses in Mount Carmel shut down. Everything was quiet. Everything was Samuel Shannon. I'm going to put water and toilet in soon. The good Lord has been very gracious, and I know you are the best girl on earth, Pappy. In the winter, the dentist's wife tells us, when there are no leaves on the trees, you can see all the way to the water, if it's a clear day. Thank you so much. I really love the interaction of past, past and present in that poem in particular. It's a really, a really beautiful piece of work. Um, thank you again so much for coming out and talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Mason Out Loud. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at, at Mason Out Loud. And please remember to visit fallforthebook.org for information about this year's festival. Thanks again for joining us and happy reading.